Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. From wars to censorship to cultural issues, you're with Mark Morano and Unleashed on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, breaking news alert. We've got good news. Hawaii has is gotten rid of coal. It's gone. Yay! Hawaii is saving the planet. Woo! Hold on one sec. <laughs> Time to celebrate. Bring out the bubbly. Hawaii is doing its part. And you know what? Green energy. What could go wrong? It's the greatest boon. Let's hear about this. Let's go clip three. Hawaii replaces the last coal plant with a Tesla battery. This is a report from just a few weeks ago. Tesla has used its batteries to power a number of different things. Cars, homes, even starships. And now they're set to help keep Hawaii running too. All part of the Aloha State's push to have green energy make up 100% of their power supply by 2045. Using what Tesla claims is the most advanced technology of its kind in the world, they may just be able to get there. The battery system spans eight acres of land on Hawaii's Oahu Island near the capital of Honolulu. It will utilize more than 150 of Tesla's Megapack battery systems, each about the size of a shipping container. The facility will replace the state's last coal plant, which shut down in 2022. Down with coal. Get rid of that coal plant. What with that filthy, disgusting, global warming causing coal plant? It's gone. Hawaii, the first state in the nation to sign the carbon neutral pledge. They're on their way to being the leader in green energy. How's that working out for him? A few weeks after that report, this is a report from this week. Uh, let's roll, let's roll clip two. We start with breaking news. Hawaiian Electric is warning customers of potential rolling outages starting at 5.30. Customers are being asked to conserve electricity until 9 p.m. HECO says they may turn off power for 30-minute periods across Oahu, starting from Pearl City to Waimalu, and ending in Hawaii to Waimanalo at 8.30 at night. They say repairs are underway to two large generating units at Waiau Power Plant that went offline this afternoon. And production from solar energy systems was reduced because of today's heavy rain. Well, it was a stormy start to the week. Heavy rain is creating challenges for several areas. You get that? Hawaii gets rid of their last coal plant, commits to going carbon neutral, and now the rolling blackouts begin. And by the way, the solar panels can't be blamed. It was heavy rain. Who would have thought in a tropical island that it would rain? Of course, no one knew that. That's unforeseen. No one's at fault with solar. Solar is the most wonderful, safe, and effective power source with no flaws. The fact that it rained in Hawaii and it ruined the power grid, what can you do? That just happens. That's a one in a million shot. No one saw that coming. This is nuts. This is Hawaii in real time. Couldn't have happened to a uh, as a lesson to the worst political system that you have in Hawaii, from the governor to the legislator. This was the state, again, the first one to go you know, zero carbon uh, pledging. And it was also the state that had uh, beaches closed the latest, mask mandates the latest. They are the ultimate fascist nanny state of all 50 states. 
So, uh, and just reading some of these issues, these are reports. Uh, this is January 30th, just last week, rolling outages instituted on Hawaiian Island amid power generation issues. 30 minute rolling outages. They had coal power. They had a good, reliable, stable energy grid, and they went the virtue signal, we're gonna save the planet. And now you see what's happening. Rolling blackouts, the glass coal plant gone, uh, batteries coming in. I don't know about how the wind is faring at this point, but this is a lesson. This, don't let this happen to you. Of course, uh, it's happening to everyone. So this is just, they're again on the front lines. California and Hawaii have always been on the front lines of this green fraud. So thought I'd have some fun with that. Uh, just incredible. I, uh, one other point on that. I got a message from someone on Twitter that they were in Hawaii last week. Entire block in downtown Waikiki went dark at dinner time last Friday night because a huge battery has replaced Hawaii's last coal plant. Power came on an hour later, and the waiter at this restaurant told them that the rolling blackouts are all over Hawaii since the battery took over for coal. Now, the media blamed it on the solar panels. Uh, I, you know, I don't know exactly if this is Elon Musk Tesla batteries to blame or not. I wonder how many how many children in Africa, how many slaves in China, and how much rare earth mining were required. We know that an average Tesla battery requires about a half a million pounds of material, including rare earths. So I wonder what all these Tesla batteries are. But anyway, this is the world of the green energy fraud. So uh, just, just incredible. Just incredible. Okay. Uh, I wanted to move on. Apparently, there's good news. I'm not used to giving good news. The farmers numbers, let's start with, I'll start with the problem. The, in, in Europe, throughout Europe, there has been this farmer protest. Okay, it began, you could argue it began in the Netherlands, that's where it was popularized. And that's where they were gonna shut down estimates of a 10,000 plus small, medium-sized family-run farms for generations with the net zero climate rules, particularly coming after fertilizers, particularly nitrous, nitrogen, nitrous oxide, and particularly methane emissions as well to go after animal livestock. That's why they're pushing the bugs and they're pushing the lab-grown meat because hey, you can't have animal agriculture. The Netherlands farmers got in their tractors and they shut down the Netherlands. And then they formed their own political party called the BBB. And they have now a governing, I don't, know if, I don't know if they're a majority, but they have a coalition now in the government. They've elected themselves a new political party and they appear to be choking uh, this net zero agenda. They're fighting back hard. Sri Lanka, we know what happened there. The World Economic Forum touted their experiment of all organic farming overnight. And of course, the, the peasants overran the palace and went in the swimming pool and the, the uh, head of the government had to flee. And then, of course, it spread and it spread all over Europe now from France to Belgium to Germany to Romania, this net zero attack. And by the way, it's spreading to Australia, where I heard from Australian biologist Jennifer Moriosi said it's decimating Australian agriculture, the net zero agenda coming after high yield agriculture, meat eating. It's happening in Canada. And we all know that John Kerry last summer, or you know, if you watch Unleashed on the DNT here, that John Kerry announced that American agriculture was going to have to come under the same net zero compliance. And we, they've had it free for too long as China and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, surprisingly, may overtake Bill, Bill Gates as the number one single farmland owner. As all these billionaires in corporate agriculture and equity asset gobble up farms, they're going to further drive up the climate compliance costs. Well, 
Let's take a look. This is what's been happening in Europe. Let's play clip four. The farmers' numbers are growing all over Europe, and they're protesting. And that's happening. Let me play clip five. Police have been spraying water on farmer hoses. They're trying to tear down the barriers. They're at the EU parliament in Brussels. Let's take a look at clip five. And there you have it. That's just been what's happening in Europe. Now, they have not as of yet brought in the Justin Trudeau uh, fascism when they haven't declared him domestic terrorists yet and debanked. I shouldn't say debanked. They haven't uh, canceled their bank accounts. They haven't done the corporate government collusion and told the banks to cut off access to the farmer's own money. They haven't canceled their insurance. Uh, they haven't seized their farms. But what has happened is remarkable. Protesting farmers successfully lobby the EU into scrapping new environment climate regulations. This is from the Daily Caller, breaking news right before the show began here today on TNT. The European Union is withdrawing a pesticide proposal amid protests by farmers against environmental regulations. The European Commission president announced the decision Tuesday to suspend a violation aimed to cut pesticide and sim similar custody chemical use in half. Uh, and the anti-pesticide proposal has become a symbol of polarization. They're blinking. The EU is backing off. These farmers are showing up en masse in their tractors. They have popular support. The people support them. They see what happened in Sri Lanka. They've seen what happened in the Netherlands. And the EU is not only blinking, they're backing down. These protests could come to an end. This is coming at, at part, at heart, Part of this is the heart of the net zero agenda. As I mentioned, the high yield agriculture, the pesticide, the fertilizers necessary for high yield agriculture, and the methane, they're going after the animal livestock. Um, in fact, when they went out to the Netherlands, it was the number one or two beef producer in all of Europe. 
And they had the best environmental practices too. It's funny how the people with the best standards, both human right and environmental, are the ones that just get twisted, twisted, twisted. And the ones that we outsource and import all the energy from, no one cares about the Middle East, about China, about India, about Brazil, whatever, Venezuela, doesn't matter. We need that energy, but we can't do it here because we have to meet our climate goals. I'm going to curse. I won't curse. Can I curse? No. No, producer says no. I can't curse. I wanted to curse there. But anyway, okay. So that's breaking news. That's a good development. It's a shocking, a little bit of a shocking development. I'm happy to hear it. Uh, let's hope they continue to make these concessions. Uh, and God bless those farmers in throughout Europe, throughout the world. Uh, and let's hope they can uh, battle this. Okay. This is a clip from the former vice the Pfizer Vice President Mike Yearden. I'd love to get this guy on the show at some point. Talking about Agenda 2030, and maybe the farmers took this to heart throughout Europe, because when you have Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and the UN just basically telling you what they're going to do, they say the quiet parts out loud all the time, literally. You don't have to guess. It's not a deep conspiracy. In my book, The Great Reset, which I'd love to have a copy to hold up, but I don't, I explain that this is not like secret documents, anonymous sources. They're doing the quiet parts out loud. Well, this is clip one, former vice, Pfizer Vice President Mike Yearden, who's turned against this whole big pharma slash medical tyranny. This is him explaining why we should believe Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum. Unfortunately, I think this is just the beginning. Uh, yeah. So I've, lear I've learned when people tell you what they're going to do, don't ignore them. So when the UN and Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab tell you that they've got a UN 2030 plan with uh, sustainable development goals, I think there are 17 or 21 of them, and every one of them says, you won't be traveling, you won't have a private car, we won't be using international shipping to move goods around, uh, there won't be any um, flights except military or perhaps very rich people, uh, you'll be, you won't own anything and you'll be happy. You probably won't live in your own house. You'll be using much less uh, energy for everything, including heating, manufactured goods, and so on. When they tell you that, you should assume that they're serious about it. And so I think yes. COVID, I think COVID has been part one of a multi-act play that's going to take 10 years that will destroy the liberal democracies completely. We've already, if you think living in a democracy, now ask yourself who you could vote for that would change this. Because I don't think there's anyone you can vote for anywhere that would is garage things. So I don't have an answer, but I'm telling you, I think we're we're sliding down through the gates of hell. I'm speaking out. There's nothing in it to me. I've lost lots of money, all my friends. I'm away from my home and family. And I'm speaking out because as I close, I am absolutely sure what I've told you is substantially true. Wow. Laying it out on the line. I love how he just lays that out and about flying. I mean, he is just dead on accurate. When they tell you what they're going to do, it's time we start believing them. And maybe that's what the EU farmers believe. Maybe that's uh, what COVID, the lockdowns and the medical tyranny, maybe that's the greatest silver lining to come out of that is it woke people up so that they will never again be that kind of government imposed instant tyranny overnight by declaring an emergency. Uh, just God bless this Mike Yearden, vice president of Pfizer, very impressive. Um, he laid it out, uh, the emergency flights. When you have 
people, climate activists saying in a declared climate emergency, you can only fly when it's, quote, morally justifiable. When you have the BBC saying flying commercial flights are not a question of when, not a question of if, but when they're going to be stopped. When you have Bloomberg saying that cheap airlines are a thing of the past, when you have France starting to ban two and a half hour flights and longer flights bans pr pr um, pr proposed at the EU to just make you stay in place, it's pretty scary stuff. And with the, with the continual uh, restrictions and collapse of energy, food, transportation, and our free speech, uh, it's time we really wake up. It's time we really listen, 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 listen. Um, and I believe, let me see here. Uh, okay. That's it for the the clip portion of the program. Uh, we're going to do a couple of news updates, and then we are going to be joined by Joe Kent. He is a retired 20-year veteran of the nation's special forces. He's a candidate for U.S. Congress uh, in, I guess, in Washington State, if I'm not mistaken on that. Uh, and he's former CIA operative. Uh, we're going to talk to him about why he's running and what the uh, even U.S. foreign policy and what the issues are with America. So stay tuned for Joe Kent after the break. But what I wanted to do is uh, just run through a couple stories here. Shocking news. Uh, Bloomberg News, which is run by Michael Bloomberg, uh, had a columnist uh, and who wrote an article saying, quote, forests are doing better than we think. It has been the rise of fossil fuels that turned the corner on deforestation as coal, oil and gas replaced wood as an energy source, unquote. This is coming from Bloomberg News. Uh, and not only do they say forests are doing better, but wait do you hear how much better. England has now more forests now than it did during the Black Death in 1350. It goes through from the United States, forests are up dramatically, just even in the last 30 years. We're not even talking 100, 500 years. And a similar picture throughout Europe, Scandinavia, even China's forests have increased uh, almost 700, over 600,000 square kilometers since 1992, an area the size of Ukraine. Tropical deforestation has slowed dramatically since the 90s because of the rise in plantation timber, cutting the need. It's also the development and prosperity. People don't need to live in the jungle. They don't need to be in, uh, in you know, indigenous tribes necessarily. They don't need slash and burn agriculture. I spent time in Brazil, did a documentary called Amazon Rainforest, Clear Cutting the Mist. It's good to see mainstream media finally catching up with this. I was watching uh, with my son an old Adventures of Superman in 1950, I guess it was 1954 episode, the, the second season in color with George Reeves as Superman. Anyway, there was a forest fire. Superman goes and I guess blows it out with his super breath. And then he phones in the story as Clark Kent, and he says that forest is lost forever due to the carelessness of you know a man, a campfire or something. And in the Amazon Prime goofs, someone actually, the Amazon authoritatively stated that there is no such thing as forest being gone, that they're actually fertilized by fire and they regenerate. And I was like, kudos on Jeff Bezos, Amazon for correcting a 1950s TV show about forest ecology. Uh, and, you know, th that was amazing, but it's great to see that th this, this kind of stuff is making it uh, to the mainstream. All right. Another story I want to talk about was the Associated Press. Now, Seth Borenstein is their longtime environmental writer, climate writer. Uh, he's called me someone who hates science. 
I, I ran into him, met him for the first time at the Egyptian UN Climate Summit in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, which I redubbed Sharm el-Sheikhdown. And he literally shook my hand. Then I told him who I was because he wasn't paying attention. He knows well who I am. And then he literally got incredibly upset, apoplectic, and said he would never have shaken my hand. Why did I do that? If I told him that I was Mark Moreno, he never would have shaken my hand. He got so upset at me and said I was one of the worst people in the world. The only worst person was Steve uh, Malloy of Junk Science. Well, anyway, this is the same uh, uh, Seth Bornstein who co-wrote an article with the Associated Press talking about Kerry's climate legacy as John Kerry leaves the Biden administration and heads over to the uh, Biden campaign, he's leaving the climate envoy. Uh, here's what Seth Bornstein and the Associated Press wrote. Kerry and Chinese counterpart Xi exit roles that define generation of climate action. The Associated Press claimed the duo of Kerry and his Chinese counterpart altered the Earth's future climate for your children and grandchildren. Uh, and it just goes on. Just how overheated the planet these... I'm going to read this quote slowly and carefully because this is just how medieval witchcraft the Associated Press has as a puff up, as a serve as fluffers for John Kerry. I won't define that. Okay. Just how overheated a planet these two grandchildren, half a world apart, will inherit. He's talking about Kerry's grandchild and the, his Chinese counterpart's grandchild. How overheated a planet the grandchildren will inherit has hinged in part on the unusually warm bond between Kerry and the Chinese envoy Xi, whose relationship for the past decade and, and a half helped forge the global stutter step progress in curbing climate change, unquote. This is why John Kerry says, do you know who I am? This is why I have to fly private jet to pick up an environmental award in Iceland. I, my work is so important. And as evidence, he can point to the corporate media, establishment media, saying that he's literally, he's controlling how warm or cold the earth's temperature gets. John Kerry, according to the Associated Press, is determining how overheated a planet the world will inherit. And John Kerry, according to the Associated Press, is helping to forge progress in curbing climate change. This is what these elites actually believe. This is how they support each other. This is the crap that they write. This is the stuff we're supposed to believe. The other story I wanted to mention was in the EU. Again, back to the EU where the farmers are. EU may delay gas, coward, gas car ban as net zero revolt spreads across Europe. Let's see the drivers. Let's see drivers going to work shut down highways next. We did a great job with uh, the farmers at the EU already getting concessions. Let's now force uh, these, these uh, you know, the, the entire highway system down. And as another further proof of this, this is breaking news today, Net Zero Watch at a UK run by Benny Peisner. Richie Rich Sunak has snubbed his climate advisors. So he is now backing away. The popular sentiment, the virtue signaling is just not supportive. All right, I'm running a little late here. So I'm going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to be joined by Joe Kent. Uh, candidate for U.S. Congress, former military CIA operative, and we're going to have a lot to talk about. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Stay tuned. TNT's Patrick Henningsen. Hamza Dahoud was the eldest son of the Gaza Bureau for Al Jazeera, while Dahoud, who previously lost other family members in Israeli bombing raid, 
and we would say that this is probably in terms of conflicts uh, this many journalists have been lost uh, killed injured in the whole of the Second World War and that lasted uh, a number of years and only in the last three months are we scraping a hundred on the uh, journalist uh, fatality list which is coming fast and furious out of Gaza. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT. When I had my heart event close to four years ago, I was at the gym, thought I deserve a coffee and thought I'll top up with fuel, ordered a coffee. But while I was pumping fuel, I started to get chest pains. Then it got worse and worse and worse. So then I was leaning on the counter thinking, yeah, something's not quite right. So then I went to wait for the coffee and that's when it really, really hit. And Joy just, you know, mouthed, do you need an ambulance? And I remember nodding. I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack. I just thought, something is seriously wrong with me here. So when the cardiologist came to see me, she informed me that I'd had what they call a widowmaker heart attack. Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. <laughs> Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you. Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right. Joining us now is Joe Kent, retired 20-year veteran of the nation's special forces, candidate for U.S. Congress in Washington State. He was also a field operative at the CIA and a foreign policy advisor to President Trump and a project manager for a technology company. So welcome to the program, uh, Joe Kent. Joe. Thank you so much. Great to be here. All right. Let's talk a little bit about your military career. You were in the Special Forces. Tell us where you served and also how that led to advising President Trump in foreign policy. Yeah, so I uh, joined the Army Enlisted uh, in 1998. I went to Second Ranger Battalion, spent uh, about three years there, and then went to Special Forces. So I was actually in Special Forces selection, the process to become a Green Beret when 9-11 happened. So Went to 5th Special Forces Group after that, stayed there for about 10 years and several deployments, then did some stuff with uh, the Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, retired on a Friday, sworn on a Monday as a, a CIA paramilitary operations officer. I did that for about a year, and then my my late wife was actually in the military as well. She was killed fighting ISIS in Syria. Um, that's actually when I had an opportunity to, to meet President Trump and to dis- discuss our wars, foreign policy, his vision for putting America first. Uh, that led me to uh, doing some advisory work on the campaign and then eventually to run for Congress where I am now. Wow. Okay. And how long did you advise President Trump, like the, the last couple of years of his office? Or Yeah, essentially uh, 2019 to 2020 and then worked heavily on the, on the Trump 2020 campaign. Wow. Okay. And tell us, so you're running now in Washington state. Uh, the la- the, everything I hear about Washington state, they've lost their mind over there. They're, they're leading the, the, the democratic party. They're banning, uh, gas powered equipment. They're threatening jail. If people use gas leaf blowers after the ban goes through Is it really that crazy in your, in that state in Washington state? <laughs> At the state level, uh, with the the, the grip that uh, Seattle and like the Puget Sound has on state politics, absolutely, uh, it's, it's probably even worse than you think. And we can go through that chapter and verse. Uh, people should watch Washington State because a lot of the bad policy that starts here, whether it's parents losing rights of their kids with the whole transgender issue, or whether it's gun control, gas stoves, a lot of that bad stuff starts out here on the West Coast and permeates 
into the rest of the country. But if you get outside of the Seattle bubble, the most of folks in Washington state, it's hardworking, it's conservative. I kind of live in the heart of, uh, of timber country. So we're, uh, we're fighting the good fight out here, but obviously the, uh, the state's against us, but I'm still in a pretty conservative district. Okay. Uh, tell us about, you said America first firm foreign policy. Where do you differ with say the Biden administration's policy? Where has America gone wrong with our foreign policy? Even start with 9-11. I mean, do you think, how do you evaluate uh, our foreign policy since then? You know, the, the neoconservative or neoliberal ideology that America needs to be some sort of an empire, but like the opposite of the British empire, where we're not actually trying to get different things for the, for the American people. We're trying to spread democracy through the barrel of a gun. That is completely and totally failed. I mean, there was a lot of lies told to, to get the American people to buy off on that, like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and those types of things. But you still see uh, this overall ideology really permeate a, a lot of the Democrat Party and unfortunately a lot of the uh, the dead enders in the Republican Party, the Nikki Haley types, the Mitt Romney types that think that, hey, if, if there's a war somewhere in Europe, there's a war somewhere in the Middle East, we need to be deeply involved, even at the expense of securing our own border or allowing the American people to bleed out on foreign battlefields or spend trillions and trillions of dollars that we, we simply don't have at the expense of our own people. Uh, so really, America first, it's it just, it's very simple. I mean, we put our own people first, we secure our own borders, we don't attempt to police the entire world. Uh, we narrowly define what our vital national security interests are. We, we can have allies and friendships, but I don't think we need to be going abroad, you know, seeking monsters to slay, and we should be very wary of foreign entanglements. I mean, our founders were really geniuses in the way they wanted us to break away from a lot of the strife on the European continent. So I, I think that that's the that's the direction I believe that the Republican Party is now finally heading, uh, thanks to President Trump. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. I like I, for instance, like I never didn't thought we never should have done anything to do with Iraq. That felt like a Bush Bush Jr. appeasing his father or something because it was unfinished business. But in terms of Afghanistan, I always thought if we were going to attack Al Qaeda, fine. But why occupy it? Didn't we learn from the Soviets there? How would you evaluate both those specifically? What should we have done right after 9-11 foreign policy wise that we yeah, that maybe the Bush Cheney got overzealous about? Could you have, I mean, I don't know if I want to put you on the spot like that, but just how would you have guided the post 9-11 foreign policy? Post 9-11, we had to go and we had to take out the Al-Qaeda uh, operatives that posed a threat to yeah. us, but we should have narrowly defined that mission. Our vital national security interest was running down bin Laden and the folks who posed a threat to us. We did that in very short order with, with some CIA paramilitary guys and special operations with some air cover. We went in, we took out the Taliban, and we had bin Laden and Zawahiri on the run. The second they crossed the border into Pakistan, a country that we give billions of dollars to every single year, we were told to stop, turn around, and now we're going to start nation building in Afghanistan as if, you know, building girls schools and doing all these sort of noble humanitarian things would somehow make us safer while we let the guys that plan 9-11 attack not to be heard from again. Really, for another decade, we finally ran down Zawahiri just last year. So I think having a single-minded focus and staying on the, the trail of Al-Qaeda would have been essential. And then, look, Iraq just simply never should have happened. We should have accepted the world for what it is, been able to take a step back and say, okay, is Saddam a great guy? No, he's not a great guy. He's a bad guy. He's probably a thug. But everybody in this neighborhood is a thug. Can we work with this guy? What's his function? We we used him to a certain extent during the 80s, and he helped contain Iran. You know, And then once we took out Saddam, Iran started running amok, and we're still dealing with those ramifications today. Yeah. 
Uh, and then how would you criticize, say, the Obama foreign policy? He actually, I believe, was you know more interventionist, one of the most interventionist type presidents with all the bombings and different foreign policy escapades. Uh, what uh, you know, and specifically, I guess that was the roots of Ukraine starting with you know antagonizing yeah. Russia, however you want to say it. But go go ahead and bring us up to date just on that, just to spend a little time on foreign policy. Sure, I, I think Obama um, is very illuminating because he really showed that there is no difference between the Republicans and the Democrat establishment when it comes to our foreign policy establishment. Both sides will essentially hire the same cast of characters. They'll enable the military-industrial complex, and they will go seeking new wars or new, you know, foreign aid projects, proxy wars, or whatever the case is, to take U.S. taxpayer dollars, send it overseas, enrich defense contractors in Washington D.C., who in turn line the pockets of again, the Republicans and the Democrats alike. So Obama was, I, I think, illuminating in that regard because as a candidate, if you listen to Obama's speeches on the campaign trail, he was going to be the guy that was going to get us out of these wars. He was almost saying America first, but the second he got read the riot act when he came into the White House, next thing you know, we're expanding new wars into Yemen, new wars into Libya. He lets a lot of folks like Victoria Newland start continuing this foolish NATO expansion into Ukraine. I mean, at the end of the Cold War, the, the folks that really won the Cold War without firing a shot, they had a they had a policy of containment. And the idea was to not provoke Russia, but to economically beat them. And we economically beat them by putting our people first, having a strong industrial base. Uh, but once the, the USSR fell, the folks who designed that said, look, we can't move NATO one inch to the east. Otherwise, we are going to create friction with Russia. I mean, Russia doesn't want an expansionist power on their border, no more than we would want Russia, you know, operating in Quebec, Canada or in Mexico City. But we threw all that out the window with this idea that we needed to continue spreading, you know, very much Western European democracy ideas uh, towards, you know, Russia's most eastern flank and, and pushing or western flank and pushing NATO to the east. So, I mean, all of this, the, the, the fact that we now see this conflict uh, in with Ukraine and Russia, this is a long time coming, but a lot of it has to do, and this I don't I don't take any pleasure in saying this, but a lot of this has to do with us continuing to provoke Russia. Yeah, Putin's a bad guy. He shouldn't have gone in and started bombing the Ukrainians, but that didn't just happen overnight in a vacuum, as the mainstream media would like us to believe. Uh, if you were in Congress, would you have voted for Ukrainian aid the multiple times it came up? No, absolutely not. I mean, on several fronts, just understanding the history. Uh, and I would make the president come to the floor of Congress and say, like, hey, OK, you explain to me what the plan here is. Like, what exactly are we doing? Define in, in very simple terms to the American people what the vital national security interest is. Define what our actual end state is and how you're going to get there. It's just throwing billions of dollars of military equipment at, at, at any project. Like, it's just failed to ever work. Why would this be any different? And I would be very skeptical because of the history that we just talked about. But then also, look, simply, we can't afford it. The fact that our government thinks that they can just print. I mean, they're proposing six. There's there's 60 billion that's proposed right now to go to Ukraine taking the grand total maybe to you know 200 billion or so that we've spent over there we're 34 trillion dollars in debt we just simply can't behave this way really even for the most noble of causes so i i think just in terms of like brass tacks like in saying hey guys sanity check we can't afford any of this nonsense well what about when you have people like senator tim scott and you have lindsey graham both republicans bragging about the fact that we can destroy or we can drain resources from Russia's military without a single American dying, sort of bragging about the fact that it's all Ukrainians that we're slaughtering for our effort. 
Is there, do you have a, I mean, do you understand, why do they say that? Is there any validity as a U.S. position to say, hey, that's great, let's use Ukrainians to get them killed uh, so they can just weaken the Russian military? What do you think of that whole line of thought? And they say it proudly. The, the whole line of thought, I mean, number one, it, it's we, we speak out of both sides of our mouth in, in several different ways. We, we we use these humanitarian type terms that like the Ukrainians are they're a democracy and they're fighting for their freedom. Uh, but then at the same time, we're like, hey, it's great that I don't know, 200,000 of them have gotten killed and we haven't lost one American. Never mind the fact that they haven't made any actual progress against Russia. And if you understand, if you look at a map, Ukraine's a much smaller country than Russia. It's always existed as a buffer state. Like to think that us throwing billions of dollars of U.S. equipment is going to literally change the history and geography of that area is absurd. And look, th their logic, I've heard Lindsey Graham say some of the most bellicose and just really irresponsible things about Ukraine, talking about how Putin can't stay in power. I mean, really, he's he, he, the rhetoric that he uses, it basically leaves Putin with no other option. He thinks now, if he believes Lindsey Graham speaks for a majority of the government, Putin's like, well, I'm, I'm not gonna actually stop fighting. And when they say regime change, what are the most references that come to mind recently? It's, it's Gaddafi, it's Saddam, it's what happened with the Taliban. So that's only going to make Putin even more aggressive as opposed to actually trying to de-escalate the situation. And their entire hypothesis is completely and totally failed because look, the Russians are really good at digging in and using artillery and ballistic missiles to just, you know, pummel their enemies into submission. They have the industrial base to do it. They have the manpower to do it. Ukraine simply doesn't. So, I mean, all these people who've been saying these bellicose things for the last two years all they've done is gotten hundreds of thousands of you, basically a generation of Ukrainians killed. And whenever this thing ends, I, I hate to say this, whenever this thing ends, Ukraine's going to end up giving up some territory. They, they just are. Is that is that good? Is that right? Is that just? I'm not making a judgment call there. That's just the reality. The only difference is we could have had this exact same outcome two years ago, and you right. wouldn't have slaughtered a generation of Ukrainians. And we also wouldn't have pushed Russia and China into this alliance that is now affecting global currency and really challenging yeah. our status as a reserve currency holder. I haven't really explored this yet, you know, as a, I don't, my specialty is in foreign policy, but do these sanctions even work? Because it seems like the harsh sanctions imposed on Russia, like you just said, gave no choice but Russia to make an alliance with China. And now you have all these other nations uh, and they're threatening the the whole idea of the petrodollar and our currency. Yeah. You, so this has to have backfired on them at this point. Uh, you know, if you early on, you remember there was a lot of media reports and cheerleading that somehow Russia's army was losing and they were going to withdraw any day and the Ukrainians were having heroic victories in the battlefield. None of that turned out to be true, though, right? No, it's all propaganda. I mean, like the, the first casualty in war is the truth. So I, I get really skeptical on both sides when they say like X amount of Russians have been killed, X amount of Ukrainians have been killed. The thing is, Russia can endure those big numbers for much longer. And just their national mentality, like they, the Russians don't care if they lose a million people like they, they just don't. I mean, like that's that's just how it is. And they can endure that longer than the Ukrainians. But to the sanctions point, Biden put us in the worst position possible. He killed off U.S. natural gas, U.S. Uh, oil exports. And basically that put money in Putin's bank account. So Putin then had the ability, he had the finances to conduct this invasion. Under Trump, when we were a net exporter of energy and Trump was going over to Europe saying, hey, uh, don't come crying to me about the Russians if you guys are buying oil from them. And Trump diplomatically blocked the NORAD 2 uh, pipeline, which that hurt. Putin's bottom line. So 
Biden kills off U.S. energy independence, puts a bunch of money in uh, Putin's bank account. And then the next thing you know, he's wagging his finger saying, we're going to hurt you guys with sanctions. They just laughed because they knew economically we weren't in a position to be calling those types of shots. China came right in and said, hey, we'll help bankroll this. Two years later, Russia's no worse for the wear economically and China's doing great. All right. This next question, feel free to just don't, don't worry about hurting my feelings. As a political observer, again, I'm not a foreign policy expert. I have a theory that Afghanistan war, they finally pulled out in that, you know, it's about eight months before Ukraine started. We pulled out. It was disastrous. I'd like to get your comment on that. But my question is this. Is it possible that the whole military industrial complex, to use a cliched phrase, after Afghanistan ended, they were just looking for basically another war. And so there was a lot of lobbying and pushing of politicians and from everything from fundraising to just say, hey, we need to commit and we need we need to put our weapons and our time and energy into another war. Uh, and we need this is great because Ukraine came along. It's almost like we finally got out of the entrenched long nightmare of Afghanistan only to six months later jump into heavily involved in financially anyway and advisor wise to Ukraine. What do you make of that kind of a theory? Do you think Washington or the military works that way, or is that just way off base? Don't hurt. Don't worry about hurting my feelings if you think it's a. No, I, I I can tell you from, from my experience, Washington D.C. one hundred percent works that way. I mean, we we most of us will say, hey, the the global war on terror lasting for more than twenty years, it was horrible, it was painful, it never should have been that way. Washington D.C. says the exact opposite. They say it's horrible that it actually ended because they <laughs> right. wanted to stay. I mean, that's why you had the military lying, and we know this from the Afghan papers, lying through their teeth to, to every single president, whether it was Bush, whether it was Obama, Trump, and even Biden to a certain extent. I don't, Biden's the commander in chief. If he would have stuck with the same, with the timeline that President Trump negotiated with the Taliban, we wouldn't have lost those 13 on the way out. And we would have been able to exit that war with a little bit of dignity. We could have gotten our equipment out, not left it there for the Iranians and for the Taliban to take, but Biden had to change the schedule. But I do also believe the military was lying to him because I don't think they believed that Biden was going to go through with it because Obama said he was going to get us out of these wars when Biden Biden was his vice president and they buckled then. So I think the military right. was basically like, okay, we're going to lie and we're either going to get to stay or we're going to leave and it's going to be a disaster. And then we can follow the Iraq model of we left, but then we're going to come back because that's basically what we were trying to do. That's why we trusted the Taliban on the way out. The, the Pentagon was trying to sell this nonsense that the Taliban was going to be our new counterterrorism partner against the ISIS group that's there as CBS well. News All had that, obviously. Yeah, CBS yeah. News had reports about how the Taliban was the, uh, there to fight global warming. There were like glowing reports, like they're not all bad. They're fighting global warming, like silly stuff. Yeah, maybe we, can, maybe we can still give them a couple billion bucks every year, you know, because that's just what we do. But yeah, so I, I, I do agree. We had been doing this very aggressive pushing of democracy via color, color revolutions uh, in Ukraine. And really the second that Afghanistan wound down, I mean, hey, the Pentagon, the DOD, the intelligence community, I think they were ready to go. They're like, okay, well, Here's the next one. Worst case scenario, we keep pushing Putin and he invades. Wouldn't you know it? He's got enough money in the bank account. Let me extend this. Now, we know that the, the, the horrible attacks in Israel happened, but it almost seems like then you had Nikki Haley come out and you had uh, other Republicans talking about bombing Iran, going after Iran, going after other countries in the Middle East. And now you have the same people are now saying, well, Ukraine's coming to an end and we can't afford it and blah, blah, blah. So you think that same th model's happening where they're going to use Israel, the Hamas attacks in Israel to get us involved in a war with, say, Iran? Uh, and then finally, that'll be the reason, OK, we can pull out of Ukraine, stop supporting Ukraine because we have another. It's almost like a perpetual war cycle. Is that 
Is that how we should look as a lay people, as citizens, at our U.S. government foreign policy at the moment? Yeah, one hundred percent. I'm not. I'm not an isolationist. I think there's times for us yeah. to go forward and actually fight. But every single American should be demanding that we follow the Constitution and we say, "Hey, the president can't unilaterally take us off the war. If you think we need to go to war somewhere, go explain it to Congress, and then make every single one of our representatives come back to their district, talk to the people in the district, and then put their name on the dotted line and vote on it in Congress." We've gotten away from that in the last twenty years. But look, we left when we. We never really left the Middle East. We, we went back in there. And then once the, the ISIS mission was over, my late wife was actually killed a month after Trump tried to get us out of Syria the first time. That's when Mattis and the rest of the, the establishment turned against Trump and started disobeying him. We left our troops. They're still over there. We left them in these uh, outposts in Syria, Jordan, and Iraq, extremely vulnerable outposts. We all knew what was going to happen. We had to partner with a lot of the Shia Iranian militias to take out ISIS. And I was on the ground when, when this happened. And we all knew because the Iranians basically told us, hey, once ISIS is done and they no longer needed us to be their air cover, they were going to turn back on us. So we had been saying for years, get our troops out of these locations. There was no reason for them to be there other than to act as bait. So that when some of our troops do die, ironically defending the border, the border between you know Jordan, Syria, and Iraq, now it's like Nikki Haley and Lindsey Graham say, well, we can't let this stand. Now we have to go to war with Iran. We haven't changed our posture whatsoever. Biden's still funding the Iranians. You know, Biden talks a big game about, you know, we're not going to let the Houthis shoot missiles at international shipping. We're still giving Iran money. We're still giving the government of Iraq that helped conduct those attacks that killed our soldiers. We're still giving them money. Our soldiers are still over there. And the crazy thing is there's just so many financial incentives for this this global war on terror 2.0 in the Middle East to take place because basically the entire Pentagon, the military industrial complex, after 20 years of counterinsurgency and counterterror fights in the Middle East, the entire apparatus is geared for that. The contracts are already written. People were hand wringing when those contracts were, were looking like they were in jeopardy at the end of Afghanistan. So right now, this war with Iran and all of their proxies throughout the region, that is like the juiciest and most tempting thing right now for the military industrial complex. And I believe them and a lot of the neoconservatives and uh, neoliberals, they will do everything they can to get us sucked back in there. Yeah. All right. Well, we have to take a break. We're talking with Joe Kent, retired 20-year veteran of our nation's uh, military and also former Trump foreign policy advisor, now running for Congress in Washington State. You're watching Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. We'll be right back after these messages. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Well, the latest in the Michael Mann versus Mark Stein trial is a little bit interesting, and I'm trying to figure out if this is right. Apparently, Dr. Mann's lawyers, there are four of them, and remember, Mark Stein is defending himself by himself. Apparently, they've asked for a nominal fee as far as damages go and there is a rumor that what was asked for now sit down you ready for this was one dollar now mark stein has spent around three and a half million dollars i've heard i don't know maybe it's more maybe it's less defending himself from michael mann and michael mann's lawsuit over the fact that mark stein thinks that michael mann hid the data and he called him a fraud Right now, I could see, for instance, let's say uh, the number one climatologist in the world said that to you. That's one thing. But Mark Stein is a journalist. That's the first thing. Second thing is he had to raise the money to defend himself. And we've gone over this. But one dollar. Why would Michael Mann only want one dollar? You know why? He just wants the decision. He just wants to be able to say, see, he actually did defame me. 
I won the court case. Well, I don't think Stein wants any part of that because of the fact that he wants to drill it home that what Michael Mann did, take two samples out of 22 and then hide, he did. He hit the data from people who would criticize it and actually tear it apart. Mark Stein wants that to come out. One's pursuing the truth, the other seems to be hiding it. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi, asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. I'm Cal Fire Battalion Chief Isaac Sanchez, and normally we like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourselves and your family safe during wildfires. But given the historic impacts that the weather has had on our state this year, we would like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourself safe during extreme weather. If you reside in an area susceptible to flooding, please take the necessary steps to prepare to evacuate if advised. Make sure you've identified at least two exit routes out of your neighborhood as one of them may be blocked or flooded. As the weather develops, remember to check in on vulnerable neighbors and family members. They may need additional time to prepare for evacuation. And just like during a wildfire, if you feel unsafe, please evacuate. You don't have to wait for the order to come. Keep an emergency go bag ready in case you need to evacuate. And always remember to plan for the safety of your pets as well. If you must leave, never drive around roadblocks. It can take as little as 12 inches of water to sweep your vehicle away. And always remember the mantra, turn around, don't drown. Be aware of first responders working in highly impacted areas, especially on the roads. For additional safety tips and updates on CAL FIRE activities, follow us on social media or visit fire.ca.gov. From climate change to energy and environmental matters, you're listening to Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT. All right, we're talking with Joe Kent, a 20-year veteran of the nation's armed forces running for Congress. Uh, please give us your website that you're, for your running for Congress. What's your website? It's joekentforcongress.com. Joekentforcongress.com. Okay. All right. Well, it's what, we only have about five minutes left, but in, in terms of domestic policy, where do you think uh, running for Congress, what are your main issues uh, in, in terms of how we redirect our nation's uh, domestic policies, particularly after four years of Joe Biden? We need to secure our border. Uh, right now, everywhere I go in the district, people tell me how they've been affected personally by the fentanyl epidemic, even though technically we're far away from the southern border. The lax drug control policies in California, Oregon, and Washington make I-5 essentially an expressway for fentanyl. We're losing hundreds of people in our state pretty much every year to that. So that, that's number one. Congress has the power to do that, uh, either by supporting, hopefully, President Trump in the future or, you know, playing hardball and saying, look, we're not going to fund anything until you secure our border. No compromise on this border bill where we let 5,000 people in a day uh, as some sort of a, a bargaining chip. That's nonsense. But then the economy is another major issue. I mean, Biden's out of control spending, his war on U.S. domestic energy, it's it's really hurting people. I mean, we get hit with the one-two punch here in Washington state because Biden drove up gas prices by killing off U.S. energy independence. And then Jay Inslee in Olympia, they add another dollar per gallon on to our gas because of this crazy uh, climate policy. And so it's really hurting working and middle class folks right here in my district. So the economic policy is huge. The, the out of control spending by Washington, D.C. I mean, we're 34 trillion 
in debt. The Democrats are completely unserious about doing anything but devaluing our currency. They're spending two trillion over every year annually what we take in in tax income. So we got to get we have to become sticklers about how much money we take in and then doing our individual appropriations bills. I'm 100 percent against this idea of omnibus bills and continuing resolutions. Congress should be forced to actually do their job and pass standalone bills. Uh, and you know, when you look at just the domestic agenda, what about uh, cultural issues like critical race and uh, the yeah. transgender issue? You know, I, just a quick aside. Bill Gates Foundation got money from uh, Warren Buffett, of all people. And one of the things that these billionaires do is fund the transgender and fund the critical race. And they want us fighting amongst each other over these issues while they basically rape and pillage the economy. But but how big of an issue are these, especially in Washington state? And what would you do about that? I don't know if your state is allowing male athletes to compete in female games, uh, but how do you solve those kind of issues? Yeah, so Washington State, and I encourage people to look this up, SB 5599, it basically said if your child who's over the age of 13 says they want to get a sex change and the parents don't support that, the school can then remove the kid from the parents' custody. And then the, the kid goes into state custody and can receive gen, so-called gender-affirming care. They can be mutilated. They can be chemically castrated then without the parents' consent. That's happening right here in Washington state. I know it's coming to the rest of the country. My, my Democrat opponent actually recently voted against the Parental Bill of Rights, which would have said, hey, if a school wants federal education funding, bare minimum, they have to show the parents what's in the curriculum. Her and every Democrat voted against that. And then she also voted against uh, preventing biological men from competing against women in sports and keeping women out of girls' spaces like bathrooms and locker rooms. So this actually, this transgender ideology, especially the way it's being taught in the schools and this, the power that our state has, it's made this very much a hot button issue. It's actually bringing, I think, a lot of uh, common sense independence or people who haven't been politically engaged before over to our side because literally the state's coming after their kids. Now, in a place like Washington State, which I guess is one of the most liberal, I was just doing opening up about Hawaii. Hawaii's probably orders of magnitude even more liberal. California, you're probably on par. Maybe that's a little bit. But how do people receive these kind of messages when you talk about economic freedom or against, you know, transgender uh, athletes competing, or you talk uh, against any of these other type of issues? Do, do, do the liberals are all are they like true believers, or are they just sort of used to voting a certain way? How, because it just seems like if you get one on one and talk to people, they'd be more reasonable. How how is the how is your state so liberal, and what has your encounter been with some of these liberal voters? You know, you certainly get people who you, they'll never vote for a Republican. They're they're just dyed in the wool. They don't care if the Democrats burn down their house and and take their kids away from them. Literally. However, your your average common sense person who I think has said in the past, look, I'm a Democrat. A lot of union families are, are kind of this way. When you just talk issues, when you say, hey, don't you think we should secure our border? Don't you think we should actually balance our budget and not tax us to death and have energy independence? And don't you think we should not sexualize children and that parents should be the primary stakeholders in their kids' education? Most people are like, yes. And then the challenge I give them is I say, okay, show me the Democrat politician at state level, federal level, whatever. Show me the Democrat that stands against that. Because even so-called moderate Democrats they're all for the open border. They're all for killing off U.S. energy independence and running up deficits. And really, all of them, none of them have the courage to speak out against this transgender ideology, in particular the way it's going after our children. And so I think when we talk issues, we actually bring folks over to our side.
All right. Well, in your in the in the final sort of thirty seconds here, just give us your campaign pill. Give us your website again, and uh, tell. Do you have a primary? Or are you the nominee? And if so, you have a primary, how many Republicans are you running against? So right now, I'm endorsed by the Washington State Republican Party and all the uh, Republican parties in our in our district. Um, so JoeKinForCongress.com again is where people can go to support. I run off small dollar donations. I'm up against an incumbent Democrat, so she's got millions. So JoeKinForCongress.com is the place to do that. We're going to win in 2024 with voter turnout. The vast majority of people feel the way that we do. We've just got to make sure people across the entire United States get out there and vote. Make sure your friends and neighbors are registered to vote and make sure they actually have a plan to vote on election day. Is a election irregularity, shall we say, is that a big problem in Oregon, in Washington state or not as big as other We're, states? We've been an all mail out state for almost a decade and a half now. And it's it's very challenging because we have no ballot control uh, laws. Anybody can go collect ballots from people. So ballot harvesting is big. We're getting into that business too, though. We're not gonna let the Democrats dominate that field. All right, Joe Kent, thank you for your service and your late wife's service.